Well, good evening, church family. I've been given the privilege of speaking, <clears throat> or the task, I should say, on a topic of how we are to effectively communicate the gospel. And this is actually a really awesome topic to be given because as the people of God, one of our greatest privileges and honors that we have is that we get to steward the most important message in the entire world, the gospel. And it is the most important message in the entire world because it answers the most important question anybody can pose. And the question is, how can a person be made right with God? How can a sinner who stands justly condemned because of their sin be reconciled to a God who is perfectly holy and just? How can a God of moral perfection be in fellowship with fallen humanity? That is the foundational question. It is the question every religion seeks to answer. It is the question every religion is predicated on. But family, it is the question that only the gospel truly resolves and answers. And family, it is the question that only the gospel truly answers. Because the gospel is not a religious message. That is to say, family, the gospel is not a call to adherence to external laws and traditions and customs in order that we would outwardly appear noble and virtuous and holy and religious. You know, family, in Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, who we know were consumed with looking or appearing holy and virtuous and noble through external acts of obedience and religion. And Jesus says to them, he says, you know, you Pharisees, you guys clean the outside of the cup to appear noble, to appear good, to appear religious. On the outside, you may seem and look beautiful, but inside the cup, you guys are vacuous, empty, horrid even full of dead man's bones. Religion is a call to external adherence to laws and customs and traditions in order that we would somehow appease God and thus family. The gospel is not a religious message. Family, the gospel is not even a moral message. Let me back up what I, what I mean by that family. That is to say, church, that our message is not moralism. As the people of God, our message is not, you need to be better people and do better things. You need to do moral things and be better moral people. That is not our message. On the contrary, our message is, left to your own devices, apart from the intervention of the Spirit of God, you cannot truly ever be better. You may modify your behavior. You might curb certain, you may curb certain impulses. You may sort of become a better moral person. But all you're truly doing is cleaning the outside of the camp. It's not a moral message, family. And family, the gospel is not even a cultural message. The gospel is not defined and confined to the cultural context it finds itself in. Family, the gospel is not a white man's message. It is not a brown man's message. It's not a black man's message. To put it simply, family, I'd be preaching the same Jesus and saying the same thing if I were Chinese. It is not a cultural message. And family, you get people who say, wow, Jake, what about... What about the missionaries who colonized the Pacifica and Maori people to believe in the white man's God of Christianity? What about that? Well, family, last time I checked, Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew who would have been as brown as anybody in this room. This is not a white man's God. It is a gospel that transcends those categories. And finally, family, the gospel is not even a political message. That is to say, family, whilst as the people of God, we affirm righteousness. We pray that God's statutes will be established in our nation. Nevertheless, 
the gospel is not concerned with the temporal rearrangement of society through legislation and law. Because family, you know what? Regardless of who's in power or what bills are passed, the kingdom of God still advances. God still is building his church. Why? Because it's not a political message. The gospel transcends political, social, religious, and racial categories because the gospel is the singular message that sinners can be made right with God when they put their faith in the finished work of Christ. The gospel is the message that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, humbled himself, condescended himself even, descended from his heavenly throne to traverse the dusty roads of sinners in order that he be clothed with humanity without ever ceasing to be God, without ever diminishing his, human, his divinity. He is the God-man, the Word became flesh. Born of a virgin, supernaturally conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He then went on to live a sinless, perfect life in order, family, that his perfect life will be imputed to those who put their faith in him and thus becoming the grounds and foundation of their justification or right standing with God. And then, family, Jesus freely, voluntarily went to the cross to die as a substitute for you and I, to pay the penalty for our sin by appeasing or satisfying the wrath and anger of God that was owed to us. The wrath that God had towards our sin was poured on Christ. And finally, family, on the third day, this Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead, thereby defeating not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that resides in you and I. It is the power to live in freedom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, family, Paul writes this. He says, what I receive, I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. First he appeared to Cyphus, then the 12, then to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. Then he appeared to James, and finally he appeared to me, the least of the apostles. Your family, perhaps the greatest gospel verse in all the scripture, it's in Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It reads, it says this, Paul writes this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Family, this passage speaks of the great exchange that took place at Calvary. My disobedience was exchanged for his obedience, his perfect obedience. My sin was exchanged for his righteousness. So now, family, when God looks at you, he sees the, when God looks at the cross, he sees you. And when he sees you, he sees Christ. Family, what a glorious gospel we have. What an awesome privilege we have to steward this message. Family, it is the only message that saves. It is the only message that turns the condemned into the redeemed that turns enmity into peace, that turns slaves into sons. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Family, this is the awesome message that we get to steward and proclaim and herald to the entire world. The topic I've been given, family, to how to communicate the gospel effectively, uh, I'm not going to so much address from a method perspective, but more from a message perspective. Because the reality is, family, the Bible or Jesus doesn't prescribe one particular method or approach to how to share the gospel. There's not one approach, even though I thought there was back in the day. Your family, when I was 19, uh, which was many moons ago, okay, I was even in my early 20s. Uh, family, I was just came, I just just came to faith in Christ, and I was zealous. I had zeal. I would preach to anything that moved. I had a lot of zeal, but not a lot of wisdom, to be honest. Uh, I remember my own 
Thank you, Pastor, for agreeing so emphatically with, with, that, with that. But my family, I remember my first pastor who was American. He said, you know, you know, you know, champ, you know, Jake, don't worry about a champ. You know, God loves using knuckleheads because they don't realize how out of their depth they are. So they move in faith better, go for a champ. I'm thinking, is that a compliment? Or said, I'm not really sure if that's meant to be a compliment or not. So family, I would preach to anything that moved. And in my old church, we were utterly schooled in this evangelistic method known as the way of the master. Who's heard that method before, family? It's called the way of the master method. And family, basically, this method is, goes like this. There is a huge emphasis on using the Ten Commandments to highlight sin and thus exposing someone's need for Jesus or a Savior. Very confrontational method. Now, family, I'm not bagging this method. Okay? I'm not here to bag this method. I think there's some biblical warrant to it, but this is how it would go. Now, I remember being doing uh, university, so doing uh, evangelism at university campus, and I'd walk up to students, and I'd go, hey, um, sorry, guys, which one do you like a spiritual survey to to so see the spiritual climate of the university, would you be interested? And they say, yeah, sure. I'd say, okay, well, would you consider yourself a good person? And uh, most people actually confess their own goodness, <laughs> believe it or not. And I'd say, okay, well, we'll find out, shall we? I said, well, have you, ever, have you ever told a lie before? And they go, well, I suppose so. I said, so if you lie, what does that make you? And they go, I suppose a liar. <laughs> okay, have you ever used Jesus' name in vain before? And they go, yeah, well, the Bible calls that blasphemy. So what does that make you? you know, I suppose a blasphemer. And we keep going, have you ever stolen something before? And they go, well, yeah, even something little. Even something little. No, no, I've stolen something. Well, if you steal something, what does that make you? Well, that makes me a thief. Yeah, it does. So, friend, by your own omission, you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming, blasphemer at heart. If God was going to judge you by the standard which you kept the Ten Commandments, would you be found innocent or guilty? And they go, well, I suppose guilty. Heaven or hell. That was, that, was the method, that, was, that was the method we would use, family. Yeah. It's starting to make sense why I had no friends at union now, I think. So, this is, so, so we use this method, family. Now, again, I'm not bagging this method, family. The problem was, though, I would use this method everywhere I go, regardless of the context, the room, the people. Family, I'd be doing, I'd be doing normal sort of campus ministry. I'd use this method. I'd whip this method out. I'd be having a sort of normal conversation at the CAF with a student. I'd use the same method. In fact, I remember, family, way back in the day at MIT, there was an a interfaith event uh, where we wanted to cultivate unity amongst the different religions on campus. Probably not my strong suit, to be honest, but we, we did that anyway. And I got up there in front of the entire student body, and I used this method. I said, student body, I have some terrifying news for you. And I said, the news is God is good. And everybody goes, yeah, all the time, God is good. Praise the Lord. I said, yes, God is good, and you are not. And I'm going to show you why by going through the Ten Commandments. So I did that method as well, as well, Pastor, over there as well. So Now, family, the problem was, because I would continuously apply this method, I often came across as disconnected, jarring, judgmental even, even very, even very disconnected from the, from the conversation. But not only was I inflexible, I never read the room. I never read what was going on and the person I was talking to. And thus actually became ineffective as well. But we find, family, Jesus, as an evangelist, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, Jesus was a master of reading the room. He would read the room. He'd read the person. And Jesus would adjust and adapt accordingly depending on who he's talking to. Does that make sense, family? Just a few examples, family. In John 4, we have the, the, the woman at the well. 
where Jesus is speaking to this woman and he speaks to her at a real personal and practical level. He says to her, can you offer me, what I, can I have a drink? And she says, oh, look, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man asking me for a drink. And Jesus makes it very practical, very personal. He says, listen, if you drink from the well, the well that I provide, you will never thirst again. And then Jesus speaks to her on a very personal pastoral level. He says, listen, I know your relationship history. This is not your only husband. You've had five others before that. He speaks to her on a real personal level. I would argue even a pastoral level. Jesus adapts and adjusts. In Matthew 19, we have Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, family, if somebody works for a church, that is the dream question for somebody to ask. How must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you, have you kept the commandments? And this rich young ruler says, well, indeed I have. Which means he was deceived because nobody can keep the commandments. But then Jesus uses the law to break down this facade of self-righteousness. Jesus gets to the point here. And he appeals to the first commandment. You know, you should have no other gods beside me. Love the Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other God beside me. And Jesus does this by saying to us, one thing you lack, sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. And the story ends with the rich young ruler turning on his heels, walking away, because the text says he had much property. The reality was, family, Jesus exposed this rich young ruler had another God. He worshipped his property, and thus was not a candidate for salvation. Another quick example, family, in, in John 8, I believe, when Jesus is speaking to the woman who's caught in adultery. And obviously the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to sort of confound him and get him to violate the law of Moses. They bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus and say, according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. What say you, Jesus? On the one hand, Jesus doesn't want to violate the Mosaic law. On the other hand, he doesn't want to violate the law of the land through under Roman rule and, and by sort of violence in the streets. So Jesus masterfully says this, that he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus showers this woman with grace, compassion, and mercy. He protects her from the tyranny of the law and, the, and her religious accusers. He showers her with grace. But then he says, where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Different approach from me. Jesus adjusts. And finally, in John chapter 3, we have Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Where Nicodemus had, and Jesus have this robust theological discussion about the nature of the new birth. The nature of being born again. Nicodemus says, well, we know that you're a good teacher, that you come from God. And Jesus cuts the right through the chit-chat and says, look, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom. They have this back and forth about the nature of the new birth. Family, this is a robust theological conversation that most likely went on for hours on end. So family, that's just a few examples. But Jesus is a master of reading the room, reading people, and then adjusting accordingly. Does that make sense, family? So family, my, my interest is not so much prescribing a particular method. Rather, my interest is actually giving you some sort of some pillars around what the message is when the Spirit of God leads you to share the gospel. Is that okay? So we're going to focus more on the pillars of the message, um, Fano, when the Spirit of God does lead you to share the gospel. So you, have, you should have in front of you a, a piece of paper, which... Um, I put together, uh, there are the five C's of the gospel, okay? Great alliteration there. Uh, I like alliteration because it's, uh, it's easy to remember, and plus it makes me feel smart as well that all the points start with the same letter. So we're going to go through them together, all of the five C's of the gospel. Now, family, in any sort of gospel interaction you have with people, 
you can frame it how you want, use your own vernacular, make it, make it sound conversational, use your own personality. But in some way, shape, or form, you will cover these five pillars. Does that make sense? We'll go through them together very quickly. The first C is the character of God. Okay, any good evangelism, you must establish the character of God. Your family, John Calvin, said that the human mind is but a factory of idols. In other words, our natural inclination is to concoct you know, different you know, false views of who God is, false imaginations of who God is. We have to establish who God is, the character of God. That God is not some sentimental blob in the sky. No, God is a being of moral perfection. That he is pure. First John says that we should make ourselves pure for he is pure. That he is holy. Holy apart from sin. Holy apart from corruption. That he is holy otherly. He cannot coexist with sin. So family, God is moral perfection. He is pure. He is holy. But also family, we have to make sure that we establish that he is just. That his statutes, his word, his character is just. Which means that his justice compels him to punish sin. He is holy. He's just. He's moral perfection. Now, some people might say, well, I thought God, isn't God loving and merciful and gracious? Listen, God is all those things perfectly. But God's love and mercy never override his justice and holiness. Does that make sense, family? So we have to make sure when we share the gospel that we establish the character of God. In contrast, family, whilst God is holy and morally perfect, we are what the Bible, we are sinners. We have rebelled against God. We have missed the mark, so to speak. We have fallen short of God's standard and law. Establish the character of God and establish the character of people. Second C, family, chasm. There is a chasm. Our sin has created a chasm of separation between us and God. Sin has severed our relationship with him. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, it reads, Your sin has separated you from our God, and your iniquities have hidden your face from him. Sin has severed our relationship with God. And family, listen, no amount of good works, moralism, religious adherence will bridge this chasm. Isaiah even goes on to say that our good deeds or our good works are but filthy rags to God. We are now estranged from God and stand before him justly condemned because of our sin. There is a chasm. Third C, family, the cross. Family, God is not only merciful and just, he is abounding in love and compassion and his love was demonstrated when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as our substitute in order that we will be reconciled to him. He died for our sin. He died in our place. That we would no longer be estranged enemies of God, but we'd be adopted as sons and daughters of a loving father. No longer a spirit of slavery, but a sonship. Romans 8.15. So it's the cross family that bridges this chasm between a holy God and sinful people. 4C. Contrition. Everybody say contrition. Family, this free gift of reconciliation through the finished work of Christ, through the cross of Christ, is purchased and applied to those who have what the Bible calls a contrite heart. In other words, those who repent, those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. In Luke 18, we say we have the Republican who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So, family, to those who repent, turn from sin and turn and trust in Christ, this offer is available to them. And the, and the fifth and final C is confidence. Family, if with a sincere heart 
we turn from sin and trust in Christ and Him alone for our salvation, that we can have full confidence and assurance that we have peace with God, that we have shalom with God. This is a guaranteed promise of God. In 1 John 5, it reads, These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life in His name. Our hope can be secure, family, in this life and the next if we, as we trust in Him alone. And then, family, we embark on this exciting journey of following faithfully Jesus as well, this journey of discipleship. So, family, these are the five C's. So we've got character, establishing God's character. There is the chasm, the separation between a holy God and sinful people. Then we have the cross. The cross and the cross alone is what bridges this chasm between a holy God and sinful people. The cross of Christ, this offer of reconciliation is applied to those who exercise a contrite heart. Those who repent and trust in Christ and Him alone for their salvation. And family, if you do that, if you exercise genuine faith, then you can have full confidence and assurance that you are right with God, that you have peace with God, shalom with God. Does that make sense, family? I tell you, I just want to say this as well. I mean, that's, that's a lot to take in. I know many of you are going, I'm not going to communicate like that. That's not sort of my vernacular, my language. That's okay. That's the whole point. We want to make sure that we're sort of putting in our own kind of language. But I want to say this as well, team. All those five C's we talked about, you're not going to emphasize each C to the same degree when you speak to people. You're going to emphasize other C's and de-emphasize some depending on who you're talking to. Does that make sense? Say, for example, family, we're talking to someone who's part of a works righteousness religion, whether it be a Catholic or a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, and they believe in some way that their good works contribute to their salvation, the C that you will sort of emphasize will be the last C, confidence. Family, if you believe that your good works contribute to your salvation, how confident can you really be? What sort of assurance can you truly have? Speaking to a Catholic, you know, speaking to a Catholic uh, person, saying, listen, brother, I know that you believe that your good works contributes to your salvation. You have this idea of infused righteousness that your good works and God's grace sort of cooperate with each other to be saved. My question to you, brothers, what confidence do you have? What bottom line do you have? If it's not the righteousness of Christ, how can you truly know that you have peace with God? The Bible says these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. The biblical gospel offers assurance and peace. Does that interest you? So you go, family, to confidence when you're dealing with people who are in that kind of system. Does that make sense? Maybe you're speaking to someone, family, who's a little bit out there spiritually. But they would say that I'm spiritual but not religious. But they say, I believe in the cosmic God consciousness of the cosmos, that we all sort of exhibit the divine spark or, or, or something along those lines. They're very new agey. Something, something along those lines. Family, the C that you'd have to emphasize with someone like this is the first C. The character. You have to establish the character of God with someone like this because effectively they've concocted a God in their own image. You have to make clear for him, listen, this is this God that we speak of is not some postmodern sort of new age concoction. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God who is morally perfect. That's what you have to establish. Establish the character of God. That's the first, that's C is what you're emphasizing. And finally, family, maybe you're talking to someone who actually believes that they're Christian who believes they're a disciple, who actually believes that they are saved on their way to heaven, but you can see via their fruit there's been no transformation. Nothing's happened. They, they confess Christ, but they still live their own way. There's been no evidence of transformation. They still do their own thing. Family, the C they want to emphasize is contrition. 
contrition. You would emphasize with someone this, hey, listen, you say you have faith in Christ, but true repentance means a change of heart and a change of mind. It means turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Genuine repentance means coming under the lordship of Christ. You know, the Bible says if you sort of sin preemptly and then call upon the cross, there'll be no provision made for you. So friend, do you know what repentance means? Do you know what it means to have a contrite heart truly? Does that make sense, family? So depending on who you're talking to, you'll emphasize one point and de-emphasize others. But as long as you sort of cover each of those pillars, I think you'll be fine. Is that okay? So family, very quickly, we've got a, um, an activity coming up. But let me just give you very quick, some very quick pointers or things to know or things to bear in mind when sharing the gospel. And we'll get into our practical activity. Here are some quick things to remember, family. Number one, remember that the success or response to your sharing of the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit, not you. Okay, so the response or success of your sharing of the gospel is the work of the Spirit, not you. Okay, so family, I want you to unburden yourself with the expectation that it's up to how, it's up to how gifted you are, how charismatic you are, how well you communicate. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. The same is true with the Spirit. You can't control the Spirit, so therefore let Him do His work and just faithfully share, and the Spirit of God will do the rest in His time. Second point, remember, just remember, team, that a no or a no thank you is not a failure. It is at the very least the sowing of a seed. Okay, it is at the very least the sowing of a seed. Your Paul says, listen, I plant, Apollos waters, and God grows. So family, at the very least, you've sowed a seed that will germinate and manifest in time. So you have played a part. Wherever you may be in that trajectory, you're playing a part. There's never a failure when you share the gospel. Third point, team, when you're sharing with family or friends, make sure that you have currency with them. Okay, when you're sharing with family or friends, make sure you have a level of credibility or currency with them. I'll be honest, team, I always found it a lot easier to share the gospel with strangers or people I don't know, because your family and your friends know you the best. They know you very well. So make sure, family, I want to encourage you to make sure that you've been the gospel they can see before you give them the gospel you proclaim. You know, Titus says we have to make sure that we adorn the gospel. We make the gospel compelling and attractive by our testimony. And fifthly and finally, family, always ask the Spirit of God to lead you before you share. Remember we talked about, team, that there's no right or right, there's no right or wrong way to do it, just make sure, allow the Spirit of God to lead you as you share. So Tim, without